So turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis 16, we will uh, read this chapter and study together. And for it to have any benefit to us or, or any use to us, we will then pray that God would implant it deeply into our minds and hearts and souls for His glory. Genesis 16 verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because... The Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Father, as we have read your word, your perfect word to us, God, we pray that you would work in us, that you would implant this truth, your truth, deeply within us, God that we would be changed, that we would grow for Jesus' sake and His glory. In His name we pray, amen. Well, together we've been studying Genesis, and in this section of Genesis, we've been studying about a life of faith, what what it looks like to live a life of faith through this man, Abram. And sometimes we're learning from some, some bad examples, some bad decisions, some mistakes, some sin, And sometimes he's got some good examples for us, but we are learning from both of those what our life of faith looks like. And this morning we learn about the importance of evaluating our desires, what we want, 
what we really want in life. So just think for a moment about what it is that you want. What do you desire? What, what do you want to have? What do you want to keep that you already have? Husbands, what do you want from your wife? Wives, what do you want from your husband? Children, what do you want from your parents? Parents, what do you want from your kids? What do you want from your job? What do you want from your life? What do you want most? And sometimes it can be difficult to think about those things, especially we're here at church on Sunday and we have our our church hats on so many times (laughs) wrongly. We should have our Jesus hat on all the time, but sometimes we've got our our church hat on and so we're thinking holy things and, and all of the right things. But let's think about it this way. What is it that when you don't get it, you go through some steps? And you may not be consciously aware of these steps. You may just go through these, this, this desire where I want something. But then when you're not, you haven't gotten it, so you, you start to demand it. I, you know, I really must have this. I, I can't just want this. I, I, I must have this and, until it progresses to a need. I will have this. I, I'm going to go get it. I will have this. And then it, it becomes an expectation. You should, you people around me, you family, you friends, you, you should be giving to me. God, you should be giving to me what I desire, demand, and need. And then as it still hasn't come or, or as it doesn't come at all, you become disappointed. You didn't, right? You didn't do this. You didn't give me this, uh, brother, sister, God. <laughs> you, you didn't give me until it becomes punishment, because you didn't, well, then I'm going to. You know, God, you didn't give me what I wanted when I wanted, so I'm not going to church. I'm not reading your word. I'm not going to do what you've said. You didn't do what I wanted. Uh, Brother, sister, or friend, or family member, because you didn't, I'm going to punish you in some way. Now, you may not be able to recognize, again, all of these steps um, as you go through them. Sometimes they happen in a split second, but here's the shortcut. When you don't get what you want, how do you act? What do you see from your behavior, from your thoughts? Do you, do you try to pretend, well, it just doesn't matter, and I'll just try to brush it off, but really I'm just kind of pushing it down, pushing it down, and eventually one day I'm going to just blow up <laughs> and just blow up all over everybody because I'm not getting what I want. Or, or maybe, you, maybe you manipulate others until you get it, right? Maybe throw some people, send some people on some guilt trips, pack your bags. <laughs> you need to feel bad because I'm not getting what I want. Maybe you throw a temper tantrum. Maybe you get sullen and sulk around and get quiet. How do you act when you don't get the things that you want? Or think about how do you act when you do get something that you want? Well, now I'm satisfied. Now I'm fulfilled. Now, God, I'll do what you told me to do. Now, you know, I can be friends with the people around me. I can be nice. You know, my obedience and my faith are held hostage until I get what I want. We do that, don't we? Yes. Those things that we want that drive those behaviors, that drive those thoughts, those are the most important things to us. And those desires can actually begin to replace God in our heart and our mind. See, when God is your God and you don't get what you wanted, you're able to say, okay, God, I really wanted that and it was hard, it was, it was difficult. You've said no, or at least not right now, but you have another plan and it's what's best, and I submit to that. When God remains our God, maybe he'll give it to me later, maybe he won't at all, but I trust that he's good, he's in control, and he has the best, so I submit to him. When those desires replace 
control of our hearts and minds, replace God there. We call those things idols because those idols are what we're serving. Those desires that we're seeking and that drive our behavior and our thoughts control us. And in fact, at Colossians 3, 5 equates them idolatry or covetousness, wanting, desiring, which is idolatry. The Bible uh, just equates those together, those strong desires for what we don't have. They become so important to us that we're willing even to sin to get it. Or we'll sin when we don't get it. Or we even sin when we do get it. Because we continue to find our happiness, our satisfaction in those things. Now the things that we desire can be good and they can be not good. They can be sinful, they can be good things. When I desire revenge or sexual fulfillment in, in, in selfish or perverted ways, or when I desire something that's just outright sinful, well, there's an obvious problem that we need to work on in our hearts. We need to, we need to find out why I desire something that's just sinful, and we need to change that. We need to replace that with God, take off what's wrong, put on what's right. But even when we're living a life of faith, and we restrain ourselves from wanting what's outright sinful. We can take really good things from God, and we can want them too much. We can make them idols in our hearts so that it becomes idolatry. This can even happen with God's promises, God's Word that's meant to drive us to Him. And let me give you an example of that. We know that Jesus has promised to return for us. And, and what a great promise that is, and what an expectation we have of being out of this world, away from sin, being with our God, being with our Savior forever with no sin, no sorrow. He'll wipe away our tears from our eyes. Oh, those are great promises, and those are special promises, and we should want those. But we can take those, and we can twist them into idols. God, I want to get out of here. God, this place is messed up. Things aren't going the way that I want Things aren't happening the way I want. I can't wait for you to get me out of here. And what we do is take his promises and we twist them so that they become selfish, they become desires, they become idols that change our behavior away from what he wants from us because what he wants from us right now is to be here or we wouldn't be. And he's bringing us through trials. He's bringing us through difficulties because in his goodness and his sovereignty, he's working to chisel us and shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So, so what we're saying is, God, I don't want those promises. <laughs> I don't want that part of your word. I just want to get out of here for my own sake. And see how we can do that, how subtle it is, and how, how tricky it can be just to take good things even and make them what God didn't mean for them to be. So here's another example in Genesis chapter 16. With Abram and Sarai, they're living a life of faith in the Lord. We, we've seen stumbles. We've seen successes. Abram tried to preserve his life. You know, he was willing to do whatever it took to save his own life, even sacrifice his wife when he went down to Egypt. Uh, there was struggle for Sarai about being submissive to her husband. You know, Abram told her, just tell people half-truths. And as we know, half-truths are also known as lies. So she struggled with, do I, tell, do I submit or do I, do I tell the truth? We've seen Abram obey the Lord. He's, he's left his father's house. He's gone into the promised land. He took on an entire army with a small little group of soldiers that he had. We've seen him endure subtle temptation. Isn't it interesting what we entrust to God and what we don't? For Abram to entrust to, to fighting an entire army, but, but when it comes to his wife, so often he's, now, God, I'm not going to trust you with my family. I'm going I'm to hold on to this myself. There are times that we don't think or believe 
or act as we should. We start to desire other things, and that's when ugliness and sin comes about. And so often what derails our faith away from God, that heart change away from what God wants, is what we want. That's what kind of comes in, that's what sneaks in, and it pushes our faith away in God into something else. They, the desires grow stronger and they progress from desire to demand and need and expectation and, and punishment. They replace not just God's promises, not just God's word, but God himself in us. And so Abram and Sarai do that with the very promise of God. God's promise is, Abram and Sarai, you'll have innumerable offspring. You won't even be able to count you're going to have so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that was a great and very precious promise of God to them. And there was nothing wrong with that desire because God gave them that. They should want what God wants. We should want what God wants. But we can never want what God says he will give more than we want God himself as Lord, as Savior, as our God in our life. And so we see in chapter 16, it's a desire that becomes so strong that it becomes a stumbling block that derails their faith. It becomes an idol that captures their devotion, their affection, and they start to worship this desire instead of God who's worthy, the only God who's worthy of their worship, their devotion, their service. But then we're going to see Jesus enter into the situation and direct one of them to proper belief. And it's going to be the grace of God. So, let's look at this chapter. That's how it breaks down into those two parts. The first one, number one in verses one through six, we're going to see desire that derails our faith. Desire can derail our faith. It sneaks in. And, and what we're so privileged to see in these verses is what it looks like. How I can tell when my desires are, are rightly placed and when I'm rightly dealing with them or when they're taking over, when they're taking control. And it's important because... Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what that means right here in our context is, you know, when we're starting to try to, to evaluate our desires, our wants, uh, a lot of times our heart will be very successful in convincing us, no, that's not an idol. That's okay. That sinful thing, it's not that bad. It's not that sinful. It's okay to want that. That's a good thing from God. That's okay to want. You should want that and want it a lot and even want it above everything else. And so our heart can deceive us so easily. It's too successful in that. So how can we tell whether our desires are rightly placed and rightly handled or whether they're becoming idols that are derailing our faith? A, verse 1, we're going to see that selfish desires depend on you rather than God. They depend on you rather than God. Get it for yourself. Manipulate, control, move resources around to get what you desire. Abram and Sarai had the promise of God. They had innumerable offspring that was God's promise to them. And, and it had to start with one. They have, to, they have to have at least one, right? And they learned in the last chapter that it would not be Eliezer, Abram's servant. God said, no, it's going to come from you, Abram. So, but Abram says, well, he didn't say it had to come from Sarai. So, look around at our own resources. Look, here is a servant, female Egyptian servant for Sarai. Well, let's use this resource. Now, the laws at the time stated that the reason for marriage, the custom for, of marriage, was to have children. And so, if you can't have children, the wife is obligated to give her husband the choicest female slave servant 
to have children from, by her that would count for the wife. Now, once the child was born, he could not be disinherited like the servant Eliezer could have been if Abram and Sarai had adopted him and, and given him the, the promise. He can't just be cast out. So they decide that in order to get what they want, to get this child, they're going to have to do it themselves using resources that God has given, but not in the ways that God has intended. We might call this, wow, that's being really resourceful, right? That's being creative and that's being innovative. That's being on the cutting edge and, and just using what God's given you. But, but to accomplish something that gets us what we want is not bringing about God's promises. It's just getting what we want. We actually become like those in Philippians 3 that, that Paul describes, who, uh, these people whose God is their belly. They serve the God of satisfying themselves. You have these verses in your notes, you can study them, but they, they satisfy their own desires, glorying in their shame. That means they're, they're patting themselves on the back, exalting themselves, congratulating themselves for their work. With minds that are set on earthly things, Paul says, those are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's what we start to act like. That's who we start to become when we're doing whatever it takes to get whatever it is we want. Believers should really be more concerned about getting what God wants and trusting Him to care for us than getting what we want. You know, well, you know, to get that promotion at work, I've got to tear down the other people. I've got to let the boss know how good I am and how bad they are so that I can get what I want. I can get the promotion. I deserve it. I should have it, Right? So that's, that's an example of how we can do this, how, how we can say, well, I, I, need to, I should have this, I, I need to have this, but I'm going to get it my way, I'm going to tear everybody else down. That's not receiving blessing from God, that's just making sure you get what you want, right? So our desires are derailing our faith in God when they depend on what we can do, how we can get that, whatever it is. B, next we can tell in verse 2, that selfish desires bring compromise rather than obedience. When I really want something and I'm looking at whether it's going to be an idol, well, is it bringing compromise or is it bringing obedience? Now, for Sarai in verse 2, there, there is a tacit acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. God's prevented me from having children. God is sovereign over who has and who does not have children. But the tone for Sarai here is more of a blame than a humble acknowledgement. Because God's held me back, He's restrained me from having children, uh, you know, here's the idea. He's done, he hasn't done it, therefore He's not going to do it. God's never going to do it because He hasn't done it to my time frame. He hasn't done it yet. He hasn't delivered when I was ready. He's must not, he must not be going to do it. So the compromise happens. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Don't worry about God's plan, Moses. Moses. Moses wrote this. Abram. <laughs> Don't worry about God's plan, Abram. Reject God's command for one man, one woman in a marriage together, depending on God, working together, having children or not, depending on His sovereignty, exclusively committed to one another. We're going to get whatever it takes. We're going to do whatever it takes to get what we want. And here's where that heart's desire becomes plain. Sarai says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, you probably have some kind of note by the word children in your Bible like a footnote or a superscript, the word that she uses is not children, but the word established. The word established, it means built up. In other words, it may be that I can finally become complete. 
that I can finally become fulfilled. I can be built up and satisfied finally by this woman, by this plan that we're working together. Because again, the prevailing wisdom of the culture around them said, you're worthless, wife, until you can have children. And God's word has not said that to women. But she's buying into the thinking, the prevailing wisdom of the culture She cannot have children, therefore she's worthless. My life is meaningless. I have to do whatever it takes for me to have children so that I can be established, so that I can be fulfilled, so I can have what I want. Do you see how misplaced devotion can derail your faith away from the Lord and onto something else? Now, part of the reason for for marriage is for godly offspring when that's God's plan, when he allows that, when he brings that about. But it's also so much more in a marriage working together in cooperation, companionship, fulfilling God's will in your marriage, in your life. There's so much more. But even the heart of godly offspring wasn't a thought in her mind. The, The whole thought was, I want to become established. I want to become fulfilled. And to get it, I'll sin. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll bring another wife into this marriage for my husband even. It's compromise. It's rationalizing just to get what I want. And Jesus Jesus himself addressed this in Mark 7 when the Pharisees and the the scribes were were ignoring God's command to to care for parents. They said, you know, you can just give all your money to us in the temple. Give give all your money to us, the religious leaders, and then you, you should have been taking care of your parents, but the money that you would have used, just give to us. And that's more godly. It's more holy. And Jesus said, you have a fine way of rejecting the word of the Lord, voided the word of God. He said again in Matthew 23, the same people were straining out gnats and swallowing entire camels because they were tithing on little bits of of mint and rue and cumin, the spices, but they were neglecting the weightier issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, they were, they were compromising. They said, well, this is what we want. This is what we're going to get. We'll do whatever it takes to get it. And Jesus called them out on it because their hearts were pulling a fast one on them. They were, their hearts were convincing them that this is good. This, it, this is a good thing. It's holy. Compromise. Forget what God says over there. Focus on this. Twist it a little. Now you get what you want, and you can call it what God wants. Now, we do this as an example when we take what we would have or should have given to the Lord, and we give it to ourselves or someone else. And that can be money that we could have or should have given in worship. That can be time that we should have spent in prayer or worship or fellowship with God's people. No, instead, I'm going to do what I want. So selfish desires depend on you rather than God, and they bring compromise rather than obedience. Verse 3, C, we see that selfish desires also feed on impatience rather than waiting on the Lord. They feed on impatience. Now, as you read this verse, verse 3, they've been living in the land waiting on this promise for 10 years. But suddenly at this point, they've decided, you know what, God, that's long enough. (laughs) I'm through waiting. It's time to act. That's enough. The waiting is over. Rather than holding on to God's voice, His word, His promise, who does Abram listen to at the end of verse 2? He listened to the voice of Sarai his wife. And the full extent is seen here that Hagar is given as another wife. Now, we're not looking at this to condemn Abram and to condemn Sarai. We're learning at this as instruction, instructive for us. Not only had they waited 10 years, they got another, at least another 13 years ahead of them. They don't know that at this point. 
they are expected to just continue waiting until God's time. Have you ever had to wait for 10 years for something from God? Some of you I know are waiting as you're praying for prodigals. How long have you been waiting? How long do you need to wait? How long will I have to wait to get what I want, God? This is a good thing to wait for, for, for you to work, and, and I don't want to wait anymore. I want to get this. We're not very good at waiting. You know, when you have an option for, to buy something online, you, you don't select the standard shipping, do you? <laughs> That's not going to take too long. I want the two-day shipping. And there are drones now today <laughs> that will bring it directly to your door the day that you order it, right? We're, not, we're just not very good at waiting. But faith-derailing desires, idols, feed on impatience. I want what I want right now, God. I don't want to wait. The part of the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as the ladies will be studying more later, Lord willing, when you, when you sign up at the information counter at the back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Misplaced commercial. Okay. Part of the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your heart is patience, waiting. And endurance while you're waiting comes from God because Romans 15, 5 calls God the God of endurance and encouragement. So ironically, when we cut ourselves off from God and we hold on to an idol, we're cutting ourselves off from the very source of endurance. And, and encouragement as we wait. So an example in our life is when we try to hurry God up. God, hurry up. Let's do what you've said that you would do. I want comfort. I want relief. I want to stop suffering. And as we've said, God promises to lead us through, not out necessarily, of suffering and afflictions because He's working with the purpose of His glory by making us different, changing us. But when we try to do whatever it takes to get out of the trial, we're trying to do what God is supposed to do. And our selfish desires feed on impatience, not waiting on God. The next one, verse 4. D in our notes, selfish desires produce division rather than unity among the people of God. Division rather than unity. Abram actually commits the sinful act that started in their hearts and in their minds in this verse. But look at the result. Hagar was able to accomplish what Sarai could not. Look what I did. Look at that, Sarai. What do you think about that? Right? Yeah, that thing you couldn't do, I just did that. And she looks with contempt on her mistress. Contempt means to grow smaller, to, to disdain, to, to take lightly. In other words, Hagar starts to push Sarai out of the way. Right? You don't matter, Sarai. Just get out of the way. See, when you get what you want or, or to get what you want, a selfish desire will push people out of the way. You're not as important to me as what I'm trying to get, so would you please move? <laughs> Unless you can help me get what I want in some way, I just don't want you around. I need you to move out of my way. And we can even couch this in really holy language. Because you remember in, in Mark chapter 14 and in John chapter 12, uh, Mary came and anointed Jesus with a very costly ointment. And Judas is sitting there saying, now why was it wasted like that? You could have given that to the poor. But John tells us in John 12 that he didn't really care about the poor. He was the one who held the money bags. And so the more money that was in the money bag, the more money he could take out. But he was couching it in that holy language, right? You should have been caring about the poor and selling it and putting it all in the money bag. We do this too easily with social media, with our relationships with one another, especially family and, and really especially marriage. You're not giving me what I want. 
I'm in this marriage for what I want, and you're not giving it to me. I'm leaving. I'm getting out. So we divide and conquer. We avoid people. We use people. I'm just going to steamroll over people. Whatever it takes to do to people, just get out of my way so I can get what I want. And we don't say it that way, do we? But selfish desires depend on us to, to, to get them, to get them for ourselves. They lead to compromise. They feed on impatience. They bring division. Verse 5, E, selfish, selfish desires lead to self-justification rather than confessing sin. The next one is that, that we don't confess sin. In verse 5, Sarai's charge to Abram is revealing of her heart, right? Hagar became pregnant. Sarai targets Abram for her envy, for her anger. May the wrong done to me be on you, right? Wrong there means violence. It means to be stripped off. It means to be laid waste. See, what happened was what she thought would bring her fulfillment, what she thought would establish her, actually stripped off anything that she did have. It laid waste to her. What she thought would bring fulfillment brought worse pain and, and, and more tearing apart inside. I gave her to your embrace physically and emotionally. That's what... That's what you wanted, and now look what happened. It's all your fault. I'm being belittled. I'm being taken lightly. May all of that be on you, Sarai says. She blames it on Abram. She wants the pain to be felt by him. You know, and, and I can't fix this, Abram, but God will. The Lord judge you for this. That's what she says. So even though it was her idea, the whole thing has blown up, and she blames Abram. It's your fault the plan worked. It's your fault she's pregnant. It's your fault she's belittling me. And, and as this all comes out of her mouth, what Jesus teaches in, Ma- in Mark 7 was what comes out of our mouth starts in our heart, right? It, it's really what comes out of our heart that is our, our evil actions, our evil sayings, the things that we want. Because this situation... And in fact, no situation, no circumstance, no person makes you say something or do something that you wouldn't have already done because it was already in your heart. That's a problem that we have in the flesh. It's already there. That's why we've got to deal with the heart before we try to fix our actions. You know, I'm not acting the way that I should. Well, then I need to start with my heart, not just try to reform some behavior. We justify ourselves rather than confess sin by blaming others. Or we find reasons we don't have to obey. You remember in Luke 10 when Jesus was teaching, you need to love your, love your neighbor, and, and so the lawyer stood up and said, well then, who's my neighbor? Because if it's just these three people, well, I can do that. That's easy, right? And Jesus told the story of the, the Good Samaritan. And Jesus asked him at the end, now who was the neighbor? He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. <laughs> he said, well, the one that showed him mercy. Yeah. The one that you run into, the one that you encounter, the one that God brings into your life, that's your neighbor. That's the person you're supposed to love. So rather than trying to find ways I don't have to listen, rather than trying to find ways around obedience, I need to submit to what God commands. Now, we can do this all too readily. You know, I, I can't serve uh, in that way. I, I can't love other people because of... I, I can't forgive because... You know, fill in the blank, right? I, I, can't, I can't do those. Whatever God says I'm supposed to do, whatever, whatever the church needs, whatever my brother or sister needs, I'll find a way not to do it and excuse myself because, you know, what I really want is this. Or what I really looking, am lo- really looking for is, is something else. Well, finally, in verse 6, we see selfish desires can require sidestepping responsibility rather than leading. 
they, they require us to sidestep responsibility rather than lead. Sarai has come to Abram, expressed a problem. What does Abram do as the husband? He says, oh, that's your problem. You figure it out. <laughs> he sidesteps any responsibility. Now, legally, this was her problem, yes, but he is her husband. He is the head of this household, which includes Hagar. But instead of taking any kind of lead, instead of helping these ladies to work things out, and it, this mess that he helped produce, he just says, no, nah, that's okay. I'm not getting in the middle of that. You guys figure that out. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul entreated Euodia and Syntyche to, to agree in the Lord. And my true companion, Paul says, help these ladies. Help them work things out. It is not optional, brother and sister. It's not optional for Christians to care about and strive for unity, for fellowship in the body of Christ. Jesus places the responsibility on us. You remember, we've talked about it before. If somebody has something against you, you go work it out. If you have a problem with somebody, you go work it out. It's not optional. It's it's mandatory. It's commanded for Christians to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, and bear with one another. In fact, Romans 12.10 says we're to outdo one another in showing honor. But without that counsel, without that instruction from Abram to Sarai, Sarai makes it worse, and she treats Hagar harshly so that Hagar runs away. So often, we can do nothing and make things worse. When something should be done for us to sidestep that responsibility can be worse than, than trying to do something at all. So we can be guilty of this too often. You know, we, I don't want to confront. I don't want to have conflict. I just want to have a, a sense of peace. And we sidestep responsibility instead of leading to peace like we're told to. And that's true in all of God's commands. But the idea here is that when you see this, When you see these things happening, you're not living an active faith in the Lord God. What we're really doing is living an active faith in our idol, the desire of our heart. It's an active faith. You haven't stopped believing and and living out your belief, but what you're doing is you're living and you're believing for a desire that's an idol. That's what it looks like. That's how you can tell, and that's that's how your desire can derail your faith in the Lord God. So then how do we get back? If we've recognized it and we're, we're not to be idolaters, we're not to be serving something or someone else, how do we get back? Well, in number two, verses seven through 16, Jesus directs our faith. Jesus directs our faith. He's going to counsel Hagar. And the first thing we see in verse 7a is that Jesus finds us where we are. Jesus finds us where we are. The angel of the Lord appears here for the first time in Scripture. Now, a few months ago, Maybe it was more than that. Back in December, (laughs) we went through uh, some of the passage of the angel of the Lord, and uh, I didn't bring it up here with me, but in my Bible case, I still have the the little um, folded card from Pastor Tom that that lists all the passages of the angel of the Lord. We believe this to be God incarnate or Jesus incarnate before his incarnation, before he became born to Mary. This is God. This is Jesus because he, he makes promises on behalf of God as God. He speaks as God. He accepts worship. He assumes characteristics that are only true of God. Okay, this is, we believe, to be Jesus pre-incarnate. Look how he intervenes here. Look at the grace and, and the, the mercy that he shows. He shows up here to Hagar at the spring on the way to Shur. Well, you say, well, that's nice. Where is that? 
that's on the border down to, towards Egypt. You remember verse 1 said she was an Egyptian. She's heading back home. She says, I'm getting out of that trouble. I'm heading home. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, comes to her, and, and she must be calling out to the Lord because verse 7 says he's heard your, your affliction. He's heard of it. He knows. He's heard her crying out, whereas Abram and Sarai don't seem to be, but she is. She's calling out to him, and he's there. But this is the call. This is where Jesus comes in mercy and grace, and he finds us where we are. Jesus doesn't say, all right, you need to find your way back. Find your own way back to me, and then I'll help you. Jesus comes to her, and you've got verses in your notes to study. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 7, where, where God is calling his people back, and he's telling them, forsake what you've desired. Forsake your own, your own thoughts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And brother and sister, man and woman, the Lord may be found. He is here now. He can hear you. He can hear you when you're at home or when you're wherever you are, when you've figured out that what you wanted hasn't brought fulfillment. In Acts 2, 21, Peter preaches everyone who calls on the name of the Lord could get, might get saved, shall be saved because the Lord is near. The Lord knows where we are. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came into our world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's what, that's what God tells us. He came to us. He came into our world. And he will never leave us or forsake us. So Jesus finds us where we are. He knows where we are. Call out to him wherever you are, he will hear. B, verse 8. Jesus is going to counsel Hagar and he prompts confession. Jesus prompts confession in verse 8. He draws out of Hagar what's happening. Hagar, servant of Sarai. He doesn't say Hagar, second wife of Abram. Uh, Hagar, you worthless fleeing servant. No, he says, I know who you are. You're, you're Hagar. You, you are the, the servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? Now, it's not because he doesn't know. He's drawing out from her and she confesses. She says, I'm running away. I, I'm getting out of there. She has no answer for where she's going. <laughs> he says, where, where have you come from? Where are you going? So I'm, I'm, I don't know where I'm going. I mean, back to what I knew, I guess, back to the Egyptian idols. But uh, I mean, I'm just running. But Jesus draws out the truth. When we call out to Jesus, when he finds us where we are to restore our relationship with him, he brings out confession. We need to stop trying to cover up our sin with holy language and self-justification. I've been running away from you, God. I've been running towards these idols. I've been running towards these desires. So Jesus finds us where we are, and then he brings this confession. D, verse 9, Jesus continues, and he gives perfect direction. Jesus gives perfect direction or counsel, and this just, it's probably just going to blow us away. He says to her, go back there. Go back there. What? <laughs> you want me to go back to that horrible situation? I mean, I'm a second wife. I'm pregnant, and his wife hates me for it. She's jealous. She's upset. My own son isn't the promised child. He's not going to be the promised one. She's going to be treating me terribly, and you want me to go back? Notice that Jesus does not give her any promise of fair treatment. He doesn't tell her, well, if you go back, I'll try to make things better. <laughs> In fact, we know from chapter 21, things will get so bad that eventually she will be cast out along with her son. But she will stay as long as she can because Jesus tells her to here. Now, if she has any desire idols, they're, they're put out of the way. Do you have a desire for comfort, Hagar? For respect, 
for a good home life, for fair treatment, any kind of future at all. None of those, I mean, those are okay. Those are good desires. <laughs> those are nothing, there's nothing wrong with those desires, but, but you can't hold strongly to those, Hagar. It's going to be tough. It's going to be unfair. Your rights will be violated. They'll be out the window. Your son will be despised. But that's my plan for you right now. Have you ever been called into a situation like that? Where you understand, God, this is an impossibly difficult situation, and, and you've got me here. Maybe it's a difficult marriage. Maybe it's a hard situation with friends or, or conflict at church or with a family member. Maybe it's an illness, a diagnosis. God, why? You've called me into this. What was your response? What is your response? Because God says, this is the situation that I have for your life right now. Do you run from it? Do you try to avoid it? Do you try to do whatever it takes to get out of it? Or do you just trust him through it? Now, it's okay to pray for God to take you out of it. It's okay, for, it's okay to pray for relief from all of that. But sometimes, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the answer is no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus gives perfect direction. D, verses 10 through 12, Jesus gives perfect hope and truth. Hope and truth that Jesus gives. There's perfect hope in the truth. There's perfect truth. This son will be the first of an innumerable multitude of people. Um, the hope in that truth is that Hagar will not be killed. His, her, her son will not be killed. They will be protected in their life, and there'll be a lot of them. And they'll, they'll share that part of the covenant with Abram and, and the chosen offspring, but not the other parts, not the the, the the covenant of land and not the covenant of blessing. In fact, an opposite of blessing for other people, he's going to be quite the opposite. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to run wild. His hand is going to be against everybody, and everybody's going to be against him. As one commentator put it, he will carry a chip on his shoulder and have a finger on the trigger. <laughs> Ishmael's descendants would be part of the Arab peoples. Ishmael is not the beginning of the Arab people. He's, he's not the, the sum total of the Arab people groups, but many of the people groups are descendants of Ishmael, and they have continually harassed God's people from the beginning. In fact, there were even connections between Arab leaders and Nazi Germany during World War II because of that common hatred of Israel. Muhammad, the prophet founder of Islam, claims to have descended from Ishmael, and there's a good possibility that's true. So you see the, 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 the pain and the difficulty that comes even from sin, even the consequences of sin. But Jesus gives this truth, this hope in the truth that's appropriately placed. He says, here's the prophecy, here's what's happened, and, and we've seen it happen over a couple of millennia, what's happened. But when Jesus brings his truth, it's comforting, it's hopeful, but not in the wrong ways, not in the wrong areas. He promises again to be with us and to lead us through temptation and through trials, but not out of them. He promises to get us through but not out until the day that he returns for us or he calls us home in death, whatever way. But we, we find comfort in that. E, finally, verses 13 to 16, Jesus guides our attention to himself. He guides our attention to himself as Hagar recognizes Jesus as the all-seeing, all-hearing one. Her son's name is going to be God hears. She's been running away, but he saw her, he cared for her. 
none of the Egyptian idols did, only the living God did. And her thoughts are no longer in what she sees and hears. In verse 4, she saw superiority over Sarai. All she heard in verse 6 was Sarai's harsh, harsh treatment of her, but, and she ran, but now she sees and hears the angel of the Lord. Jesus. And she says, have I really seen him who looks after me? And the important part here is not necessarily that, oh, I've seen him, but he has seen me. He's looked after me. She recognizes the grandness and the power and the goodness of the Lord. And she calls out to him. And her attention is on him rather than on those circumstances. So to remember this, she names the spring after this whole thing. Bir Lahai Roy, well of the living one who sees me. But notice again that this woman who has believed the Lord, has turned her attention to what he says. Now she obeys what he says. He goes, she goes back to Abram, and we know that in verse 15 because Abram names him Ishmael, just like the angel of the Lord said. Sarai's plan ultimately fails. Abram is now 86 years old. He still does not have the promised son. He doesn't have God's promise happening yet. Sarai's plan wasn't part of that. Abram's plan wasn't part of that. But they're called to still continue to trust. So, brother, sister, when we're in difficulty, when we're in distress, when we're in trials of every kind, or even when we're just waiting on God, we need to turn our attention to His greatness, His grandness, His goodness. We listen to Him. We obey Him. When you see self-reliance to get what you want, when you see compromise, when you see impatience and division and self-justification, when you see sidestepping your responsibility, that's your desires becoming idols in your heart. And so to return to the Lord, you, you, you call out to Jesus who is there, who hears you and sees you. You confess to Him where you've gone astray in your head and in your heart. You listen to His direction, even when it's impossibly difficult. And you believe the truth of His Word that brings you real truth and real hope for what He's doing in your life. And you direct your attention, your, your affections, your worship to this great Savior. Now, the popular thing to say at this point would be, trust him, trust him, trust him, and eventually he'll bring something miraculous. But that's not what happens here. Not yet. It, it may not ever have something miraculous that happens. More often, he comes through with his presence to guide you through. So wait patiently and don't fall for the ways of the world to just make it happen, to do it yourself. Our application is to, what we need to be doing is, is examining our desires. And, and the first one there is replace your sinful desires. Replace the sinful ones. Take those sinful things that you want and get rid of them in your heart and mind. Replace them with what God says we should want. But then when we have good desires, we need to surrender the good desires to the Lord. That next one is just surrender those good desires. These are desires I have. This is what I want. This is what you've told me I should want. But I wait for you, God. Father, we pray that you would teach us to do that. That we would be evaluating our desires, our wants, Lord, our wishes Lord, the things that we hope for and want, God, we pray that you would help us to evaluate those, that we'd repent of sinful ones. You teach us how to replace those with what you want. God, then you would help us to evaluate how much and why we want the things that we do want. God, would you change us? Would you work in us? God, this is how we can be changed. This is how our faith can be strengthened in you and how we can keep it from being derailed by our own hearts by our own desires. We thank you for our Savior Jesus. In his name, amen.